From WDBM East Lansing, this is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello, this is Arts Editor Skylar Ashley filling in once more for publisher Burl Schwartz. We've got a great show for you this week. We'll hear from frequent City Pulse contributor Bill Castanier about great books to read during Black History Month. And we'll learn about Tamara Ramona, a woman who bounced back from homelessness to create her own successful smoothie restaurant. But first, we're going to listen to reporter Todd Haywood's interview with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, I appreciate your time and and being here and uh, the conversation that we're going to have. We're uh, at City Pulse working very hard to really dig down behind the the move to really address racial equity in the state of Michigan and the greater Lansing area. So all my questions are going to focus on that. Um, and, and I think it's important. And I want to start off with, um, you know, COVID, as we know, disproportionately impacted the African American community and, and overall people of color in the state of Michigan. Um, what steps has the, the Whitmer administration taken to begin to reduce that disparity and how important is it? Sure. So, you know, again, thanks for having me. And this is a really important conversation, I think, for communities across the state of Michigan. And the COVID-19 pandemic hit communities of color very hard. It did so nationally and it did so in communities across the state of Michigan. To put that in perspective, we had our first COVID-19 confirmed cases on March 10th and through the month of March and April, our COVID-19 deaths in Michigan, Black Michiganders who make up less than 14% of the population accounted for 41% of the people who died of COVID-19 uh, during that time. Um, we were concerned about this disparity potentially being present. And that's why Dr. Joné Caldun, our chief medical executive, before we even had our first case, she worked with local health departments and hospital systems to outfit our public health infrastructure to even track demographic that included race and ethnicity. And then once we saw these disparities that were so rampant and so deadly, uh, Michigan became a leader in the nation. We were the first, we were one of the few states that actually even reported demographic data that included race and ethnicity in the beginning from day one. And then we also were the first state to create a statewide, you know, fully throat, full throated, fully supported task force to address these racial disparities in terms of COVID-19. We did the executive order. The governor asked me to be the chair, appointed me the chair of that task force. And we got to work because unlike other task forces where you get a bunch of great people together and have meetings, they do studies and they produce a report like people were dying in real time. Like I was personally uh, getting text messages and calls and emails about friends, family, former colleagues, et cetera, passing away from COVID-19 every single day. And so, you know, and I've lost throughout this pandemic, I've said goodbye to 27 people from COVID-19. And so it was important that we actually recommended and enacted interventions in real time to stop people from getting sick and from saving lives. So what did that mean? It meant a lot, first of all. Um, we did tactics to address everything from implicit bias when it came to the varying out of medical uh, testing and treatment through a letter from Dr. Jodé Caldun to every uh, medical professional in the state of Michigan. We then took a step further and through executive directive, uh, asked the Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs to make a requirement 
of medical licensure dual and acquisition to take implicit bias training and that rulemaking process is ongoing. But we also did things like rapidly expanding our testing protocol so the more people could have access to testing because a lot of people in communities of color were not able to get tested, which is part of why they were um, dying. So we increased access to testing for asymptomatic people. We made it free. We innovated drive-through testing. The state stood up 23 neighborhood testing sites in deeply impacted communities. We did this partnership with Ford Motor Company for these specially outfitted mobile vehicles that could drive testing to a vulnerable community, to a church, to a jail, to a park, to a homeless shelter, a flexible platform, to a to a um, you know a farm where migrant workers needed to be tested and everything in between. Uh, we launched a Get Covered campaign to connect people to health insurance. We didn't have health insurance. We, cannot, we launched a, a navigator program to connect people to primary care physicians who didn't have them because we know that in communities of color, in the Black community in places like uh, Detroit or Flint, we have, um, you know, you have these neighborhoods where there are doctors. And so you have all these people who may have health conditions, may have diabetes, high blood pressure, or asthma, or heart condition running their family, but they don't have a doctor to help them manage that. So when people were coming into contact with a medical professional for the first time or for the first time in a long time, we connected them to a medical professional that they could then work with regardless of the outcome of their COVID-19 tests so they could manage those conditions and have better health outcomes. Um, we really led in terms of making, uh, uh, we did a uh, multimedia, all media, you know, social media, TV, radio, print, um, direct marketing about mask wearing and social distancing and encouraging communities of color to do that. And the surveys have now shown that people of color are much more likely to actually follow public health protocols. And I think that's in part because of our focus on it. We distributed more than 6 million masks for free across the state of Michigan um, to vulnerable people, including about 2 million masks that were kid size with an eye toward helping kids be able to learn in person safely. Um, we also leveraged federal dollars from the federal from the CARES Act to create what we call a rapid response initiative, which were 30, gosh, uh, can I follow up with the numbers, but it was like 31 entities for a total of like $32 million um, of grants to community-based organizations around the state of Michigan that are dealing not just with direct COVID-19 response, some of them dealt with you know, PPE distribution, uh, testing access, things like that, but also dealing with some of those social determinants of health, access to economic opportunity and jobs, or access to food, to deal with food insecurity that some people have experienced, hunger and homelessness, to creating educational experiences for children with special needs who have not been able to be as fully served as they need to be during the pandemic with, their, with our remote learning. And so we've taken a comprehensive approach to addressing these disparities, and we've been a leader. Michigan has shown that when you focus on addressing racial disparities, you can improve them. And in the last three months of 2020, the interim report that the task force released showed that while in March and April, Black folks represented 41% of the people who died of COVID-19 in October, November, and December, Black folks represented less than 10% of the people who died. Rather than representing 38% of the cases, we represented less than 10% of the cases. So we've made progress. That progress is fragile. So we have to keep, we have to remain vigilant. Uh, we are making sure that we're using the same sorts of, uh, you know, targeting measures with, uh, with when it comes to social vulnerability and things like that with our vaccine rollout that we were using with our other strategies with the, with the task force. And we hope that that will bear fruit there as well. And since you brought up vaccines, uh, I just visited the MDHHS 
coronavirus page to look at vaccine data, we know that this disparity exists, but why is it that we're not tracking racial demographic data in vaccine distribution right now? It's just age and, and gender. Yeah, this is a matter of this is a matter of time. So we are working on making sure that we are able to capture that data, just like we had the outfit, the health infrastructure to be able to track that for testing. The same had to be done for vaccinations. That's not something that was uh, commonly done. So we're working toward achieving that. So that's something, that's something that we want to measure um, because it's important. And we also want to recognize again that there were certain communities hit harder. So we want to make sure that our vaccine response is responsive to that reality. But that's something that's important to us and our vaccine. So do you have any sense as to when we'll start getting some data on racial demographics on vaccines? I don't have a time frame for it yet. It's something that our the team at the health department is working on. Uh, shifting very quickly, um, you know, there was a home security, homeland security alert put out about extremism, domestic violence extremism. And within that context, um, there was in the very first page or the very first line reference to uh, violent extremists upset about uh, police use of force. Have you seen that that bulletin? And do you believe that that was coded to target uh, Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd related protests? And does that concern you that it was coded that way? I haven't seen that specific language in the bulletin. Um, but I do know this because we've seen it in Michigan. We have seen a rise in violent extremism. We have seen a rise we saw a rise of people with terrorist intention uh, plot to storm the Capitol where I work. I'm sitting, I'm talking to my Capitol office right now behind the Senate chamber. I was presiding over the Senate chamber, Senate session on April 30th when men with long guns came into the gallery, uh, armed and dangerous to do so. We saw people, um, you know, taking action and, and again, working to overthrow the Michigan government because uh, they were upset about COVID-19 response. And so we've seen extremism and, and it, of course that reached the, the, the pitch that it hasn't reached in you know, 200 years when people stormed the United States Capitol and reached it for the first time since 1814. And so um, that's been real. We've seen it with an increase in hate crimes, for example, for Asian American and Pacific Islander um, people since the beginning of this pandemic or it's at the beginning of its presence in our country. And it's something that is very alarming and concerning to me. I don't think that that kind of hate should have a place in our America going forward, we should be a country that instead uh, celebrates and values the diverse perspectives and life experiences that all of our people have. That's certainly something that makes Michigan such a fantastic place because we have people from all walks of life, from all over the world who chose to settle in the state of Michigan. That is a beautiful thing. The reason my family is here is because we migrated from the South um, after the war, for example. And so um, there's so many stories like that from all across the globe. And the idea that some target violent because of who they are, because of their heritage, because of their history, because of their uh, how they worship, they love, it's disgusting, and we need to you know stomp that out, stomp out that kind of hatred um, wherever it rears up. We have. Yeah, you, know, you were presiding over the Senate when when the militia folks came in and were up there with long guns. Have you had a conversation with Senate Majority Leader Shirky about his meetings with militia leaders? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it is incredibly problematic to legitimize um, those people who came in to commit violence. Uh, coming in to overthrow and storm the government, that put in danger everyone's lives. It puts in danger not only the lawmakers, but the staff of those lawmakers, the people who staff and make this uh, legislative building work, the people who clean this building, the people who secure this building, 
the children who tour this building to learn about the government. I came here when I was seven with my grandma and her eighth grade social studies class to learn about the government. Imagine if I would have been here when those guys were coming in here with guns. That is, there has no place in the lawmaking process. Guns have no place in the lawmaking process. Thank you so much, Mr. Lieutenant Governor. I appreciate it. And Kamara, thank you for entertaining me for an extra couple of minutes. I appreciate it. Thank you, Todd. Let's turn now to a conversation between City Pulse editor and publisher Burl Schwartz and frequent contributor Bill Kastanier about great books about the Black experience in America. Joining me now is City Pulse's book editor, Bill Kastanier, to talk about books in his library that you might want to read during Black History Month. Bill, good morning. Good morning. It's good to talk to you today. Yeah, same here. Yes, I thought about our conversation. I recall the first encounter I had with a book about the African-American experience. It was Black Like Me by John (laughs) Howard Griffin, a white journalist who chemically darkened his skin to do something unheard of in America in the 1950s, to pass for black. It held a double whammy for me. His travels, including to the Deep South at a time when segregation was rampant, uh, were eye-opening. But it also opened my eyes to the possibilities of a career in journalism. Any such influential book on race in your past, Bill? Well, it's funny you mentioned Black Lightning because it is the first book on my list. And I wanted to point out also it was written by a white man. But I think every probably kid in either junior high or just beginning high school, probably read that book in our era. Um, and what's interesting is it's written by a white man. Um, today, that would be unquestionably wrong. Um, That's true. I hadn't thought about that. They even made you know, a movie about it. <laughs> exactly. And I went back and read it this year. It is pretty quaint, frankly. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think a, a book in my past that really influenced me it could have it could have been a tree grows in Brooklyn, which I read about the same time, and it's by Betty Smith. And interestingly, she wrote that while her husband was a graduate student at the University of Michigan. So she wrote it in Ann Arbor. Huh. Kind of fascinating. Yeah. It, so I think well, that would be one of my first introduction uh, as a you know as a teenager. Yeah, I'm curious since uh, you, you said you're you're only going to talk about books in your own library. So, do you have first editions, for example, of Black Like Me and The Tree Grows in Brooklyn? Yes. Wow. I do. Yeah, it's, it's an area that my spouse and I both collected in. She's especially interested in African American women writers, so we have quite an extensive collection of in that genre. Um, so I, all I had to really do was go upstairs to our book room and go through it and go, here's the book. And great. I've read, because of her, I've read many of them also, most of them, frankly. I, I can just go through some of them. and Please do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a very modern one. And it was just chosen by the city of Detroit as a citywide read, and it's called Black Bottom Saints by Alison Randall. And it's you broke in, up a little bit, Bill. What, who's the author? Allison Randall, and it is an incredible book uh, uh, about an impresario in the city of Detroit in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, I recommend it to everyone. It was a Michigan Noble book book pick, and it's a fabulous book, but Allison Randall was from Detroit. And I think another book from a Detroiter I'd like to talk about is Robert Hayden, who's a Detroit poet. 
he's the first black poet laureate of the United States. And his his book that I'd recommend is Words in Morning, and that's M O U R N I N G. Is that a collection of poetry? It is a collection of poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, another book by a Detroiter, and I think Detroit is you know sort of a Harlem Renaissance right now. It is by Bridget M. Davis. It's a nonfiction book, A World According to Fanny Davis. And it's about her mother who was a major numbers runner in Detroit yeah. in the 50s. Um, the, uh, another Detroit book is The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. I missed the author on that. Um, but it is about the early history of Detroit. People think because we were a northern tier state, we didn't have slaves. She proves it wrong. Hmm. Great book. Another book, and I, I detail. Let me interrupt just briefly to tell our audience that uh, you're listening to 89FM, The Impact. Uh, and uh, we're talking to Bill Kastner, City Pulse's book editor, about books on the African-American experience in his personal collection. Bill, continue. Sure. Uh, one of the books that I think, He's probably the most popular books ever written in American literature. Is the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex? Yeah, let me me chime in briefly here that I actually edited Alex Haley uh, when I was the managing editor of the Knoxville News Sentinel, and he lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he'd go out on uh, a boat now and then uh, to write. Because uh, he had terrible writer's block, and all he usually wrote were these letters to the editor of my newspaper that were maybe four or five thousand words, and they were terrible. <laughs> he was a terrible writer. <laughs> anyway, we died. Of course, of course, he wrote Roots, which put uh, an African American experience on a map. Yeah, it was made made into that multiple part movie. Um, right. Another autobiography of um, Malcolm X, which just came out this last year, is uh, The Dead Are Arising by a former journalist, now dead, Les Payne. Fabulous book. That's um, uh, the one you just reviewed. In I, this, this I did. Page. I just reviewed just recently. And then there's Eliasa Shabazz. Now that's the one. Yeah, Malcolm X's daughter, who just uh, wrote her third book on her family, The Awakening of Malcolm. And these are books that are for young adults. But they're they're gut wrenching. Um, but they are also about redemption, family, and a person leading a decent life. And uh, she's she's incredible. Yeah. I mean, um, another Detroit writer who's making his way, and there's a movie going to be made on one of his books. Stephen Mac Jones, who, by the way, is originally from Lansing, went to Sexton High School. He worked. He went to Michigan State University and had a 30-year career in the auto industry in Detroit as a in the advertising agency business. And he has written thrillers, uh, and it features a character called August Snow. And his first book was called August Snow. But uh, they're in the Lee Child kind of frame, and they're exciting. He's he's quite the writer, and uh, we hope to try to bring him into town. Or something to do a Zoom with the Historical Society because he's from from Lansing. Oh, that'd be uh, great. It, it'll be neat. He's he's a fabulous guy. Yeah. Um, some books that uh, I'd like to just briefly mention that aren't by you know Michigan or or um, Lansing writers that I think everyone should kind of take a look at is 
Frederick Douglass's My Bondage and My Freedom. It's probably one of the most inspiring books anyone could read. Hmm. You know, and Frederick Douglass goes back to the 1860s. Right. He was writing. And, uh, he spoke in Lansing in 1867, where he gave an incredibly impassioned speech about uh, presidential power, which we should share with people at some time. I'm curious how you know he spoke in Lansing. Uh, you mean the people that wrote or that were here or what? Yeah, no, how, historically, I mean, how do we know he spoke in Lansing? Oh, because of uh, newspaper accounts. Ah. They covered almost verbatim some of these things. Interesting. Yeah, they're in the early newspapers, you know, the ones with no photos that just went page after page and type. Wow. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things that we're saying. Um, yeah. the, also, James Baldwin, The Fire Inside Us, or, or Go Tell It on the Mountain. James Baldwin, Baldwin was more of a contemporary writer of the 50s and 60s, but a fabulous writer. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention books by Barack Obama. Hmm. Dreams from My Father is probably my particularly uh, most inspiring book. And of course, his spouse has written uh, Becoming, which is a bestseller also. Uh, Langston Hughes, uh, the Harlem Renaissance poet, mm-hmm. which is kind of gaining uh, some importance again because the Harlem Renaissance, people are looking at it. Uh, we have a series of a collection of poet, poets also. You can take a look at Maya Angelou, Why a Cage Bird Sings. And she was one of the first um, poets not, not, to, not to give an inaugural poem, but to have it published in a book form. Uh-huh. It's, called, it's called On the Pulse of the Morning. And now we're going to see Amanda Gordon, who just did uh, that poem, Hill We Climb, being published in March. Uh, that poem will be published uh, especially for uh, the inaugural of uh, the president. Yeah, well, and unfortunately, we're about out of time, but I did want to, you know, mention uh, that what happened this year uh, at the inauguration with the African-American poet you just mentioned uh, reminded me very much of uh, 1960 and Robert Frost and the impact that his poem uh, had on uh, America. Bill, thank you very much. Uh, what a fabulous collection you have, and uh, I hope we can uh, maybe get another radio look at it one of these days. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you, Burl. Thank you, Burl, and thank you, Bill. We now turn to my interview with Tamara Ramona, owner of Smoothie Queen in the Allen Neighborhood Center. Ramona's story is fascinating as she bounced back from living in her car to finding success today as her own boss of her own company. Walk me through the history of Smoothie Queen. How did you get started doing this? What inspired it? Just uh, walk me through the beginning here. So originally, um, I was working a nine-to-five job um, at a call center, and I just was very unfulfilled with that. And, um, you know, I just started, like, losing motivation to go to work (laughs) And then, um, obviously, I was let let go from that job because uh, I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to be there, so I just kind of like, you know, didn't do so well with my attendance. <laughs> um, and then, you know, after being let go, I was like, okay, I need to figure out what else to do because I can't just do nothing. And so, um, 
I was on Pinterest. Was this in 2019? Yeah, 2019. Okay. Um, and so I was on Pinterest, and I was looking up, like, smoothie bowl recipes just because I wanted to make one. And um, I don't know. I've just seen all these pictures, and, and that's kind of what sparked the inspiration. Um, and then I decided to make one, and it was, like, really, really good. And I was like, like, like the best thing I ever had. <laughs> and I was like, I wonder if I could like maybe sell these. Cause at that time there were people, you know, um, selling food and things like that on Facebook. Um, and so I was just like, I wonder if I can like sell these. I didn't know any, anything about the rules and regulations or anything like that. Um, so I was like, I'll just, I'm just going to do it. So then I went on Amazon and I bought like all these bowls, all these cups and things like that. And I made it and I made a post. I I, I was a photographer before then too. Um, And so I had made a post on Facebook and I basically told people, you know, hey, I'm trying to start this smoothie business. I don't know if anybody, you know, is interested, but this is what I'm offering. And to my surprise, a lot of people were interested. And I think I made like, $300 in one day, you know, just selling smoothies straight out of my apartment. And I was like, okay, that's more than I would have made (laughs) at my nine to five. And I was like, that's crazy. And I was able to do that consistently, you know, for, um, for like a good six months, I would say. When did you get started uh, with Allen Market? How did you get it from uh, being based out of your apartment to being based in Allen? In October, obviously, sales slowed down because it was, you know, getting colder out. And so I started falling behind. Um, October the, of 2019? Yep, 2019. Okay. Um, and so I started falling behind, and then, you know, I just didn't plan. I didn't save. I didn't do any of that, you know. Um, so by the time January came, I was no longer able to support myself. And... um And then I uh, had to live in my car, you know, and that was just me, you know, proper money management. So from January until like, um, I want to say April of 2020, I was sleeping in my car, you know, living in Airbnbs, hotels, things like that. Um, Just a short overview. And then I had reached out again on Facebook, you know, from all these people that were supporting me throughout the whole summer, what have you. Um, I basically let everybody know what happened because people were asking me, like, why are you not selling smoothies? Why aren't you selling smoothies? And so I just kind of, like, put it out there to everyone, like, this is why. And to my surprise, so many people had donated money to me and allowed me to use their home kitchen you know, so that I can get back on my feet. And I started selling smoothies out of the back of my trunk um, and all of that. And then eventually that led me to being able to save up enough money because I was like, okay, I want to do this right this time. Um, and that, that led me to being able to save up enough money to um, get my food license and everything that I needed to start at Allen. Wow, that's that's awesome. Were you also able to... Um acquire enough money or save up enough money either yourself or through donation to um, get another place to stay so you didn't have to stay in your car and were you able to um, take care of that as well yeah for the first couple months that I was at Allen I was still like in an Airbnb um, 
And it's crazy. A lot of people thought I was I was crazy for putting that above, you know, me want like a permanent permanent place because it was like that the food license cost me almost around two thousand, honestly. Uh, but after I had that, I knew that more money would come in and then I could be able to get a place. So I was able to do that. And then I was able to move into where I'm at in like, um, I forget, I forget when, I think October, October so, of 2020. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a lot to overcome, I guess. You know, while you were in that situation, while you were living in your car, what was the uh, inspiration that kept you going? To be honest, I think it was more so like just me wanting to be my own boss and not going back to uh, corporate America or the nine to five because to me it just felt soul crushing. Um, Like I just, like even thinking about it, it's just like I just don't want to, I didn't want to do that. I knew that I would just be unfulfilled and I would feel more of a failure if I went back to that rather than if I continued, persevered and uh, following my dreams of being able to be an entrepreneur, be my own boss. Um, and plus, after making your own money by yourself for so long, it's, it's kind of hard to to go back, you know. Uh, so that was my motivating thing. It's like I just don't want to go back to a nine-to-five. And that does it for us here at City Pulse. I'd like to thank you, the listener. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. For City Pulse, this is Skylar Ashley signing off.